Hello and welcome to the latest instalment of Bull vs Bear, the IC's podcast series where we delve into the investment case of a blue-chip British company. This week, pharma giant GlaxoSmithKline, a company that the IC has been a bit hesitant about for a number of years. I'm Megan Boxall, the IC's pharma specialist, and I'll be taking on the bear argument. And joining me to argue the bull case is Simon Gurgle, fund manager at the Merchants Trust, which GSK is the second largest holding and it makes up 6.5% of the portfolio. Simon, thanks very much for coming in. And let's start with the big question, which is, as far as investors are concerned, the dividend. Are you confident that it can be sustained? Um, yes, we are confident. When when I look at the cash flow that, that Glaxo generates, it generated last year enough cash to actually start to deliver the balance sheet a little bit after everything. Now, that was slightly flattered by foreign exchange and some disposals, but underlying it generated about £3.4 billion of cash. The dividend cost £3.9 So there were pretty much generating enough cash to cover the dividend on an underlying basis. And actually, that was after some very significant working capital outflows associated particularly with the Shingrix uh, build-up as they were building up stocks, and also some restructuring costs. So underlying everything, if you would take some of those out, they should generate enough cash to cover the dividend. And then more fundamentally, if you look at the type of business they have, the products they make, the markets they're in, they're very high profit uh, margin businesses and they should be able to generate sufficient cash to, to both invest in the business and pay a good dividend. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's interesting. You talk about the free cash flow because they've changed the dividend metric to cover free cash flow rather than earnings, but it's not quite there. I mean, this year, free cash flow is forecast to be about $3.5 billion. As you say, $3.9 billion for the ATP per share uh, dividend, which they've said that they'll keep paying. It's not quite there. Is that not a slight risk? Well, I think... That's close enough on a, on a one-year basis. The question is really, where does it go in the medium to longer term? Is the cash flow going to, going to increase in the medium to longer term? And will that be sufficient to both maintain and ultimately grow the dividend? We would anticipate that the business will grow. If you look at vaccines, it's growing quite fast. Consumer health uh, should have some underlying growth in low to mid-single digits. And the pharma business actually should grow. There are particular issues with Advair we may talk about. But the overall business should generate improving cash flows. And I think some of the headwinds for cash, such as restructuring costs, should gradually fall away. So I'm, I, I wouldn't, I, I wouldn't make a forecast for this year particularly. But I think if they're round about generating enough cash to cover the dividend this year, that's okay. And then over as as time goes on, they should generate more. And are you hoping that they'll get to the level, the 1.25 to 1.5 times dividend dividend coverage, which is what they've said they'll start increasing the dividend again? Um, are you hopeful that will be a few years time? Yes, I'm not going to put a time frame on it. I mean, they've got they've got some plans for 2020 they've given some pretty good targets of where they want the business to be which show decent growth from from where they are so hopefully in due course they can get to that point but i don't think the investment case is not based purely around the dividend i'm sure we'll talk about other other aspects (laughs) um but it is something that our readers especially and listeners are very interested in Um, absolutely but the in terms of that cash flow as well there have been a lot of concerns that research and development expenditure not only is going to pick up but needs to pick up and that could have an impact on the on the cash generation as well. Well they're spending a huge amount I think it's about three and a half to four billion pounds a year on research and development and arguably that hasn't generated the sufficient new products coming through in the past that it should have done. I don't know whether they need to spend significantly more than that in absolute terms or whether they need to focus it more. They've talked about reducing the number of entities or products they're going to push through and and put more money behind those ones. I'm not sure whether in aggregate that means the R&D spend will go up significantly. Perhaps it will, but um, that's not necessarily the case. 
GSK has spent an average of 13% of its revenue in R&D in the last few years. As compared to 27% for AstraZeneca, if it starts to invest the same sort of amount as AstraZeneca has done, that is going to have an impact on its ability to generate earnings. I don't think they will spend that sort of level of, of, of uh, sales on, on R&D for two reasons. I mean, partly because of the mix of the business. So consumer health, which is quite a big chunk of revenue, would never have that level of, of investment behind it. And I think they they haven't, as I said earlier, they haven't got the returns out of that R&D. So it's questionable whether they should be doubling the spend just to try and get more entities. Um, I'd be very surprised if they wanted to spend anything like that sort of money. And I think the market would be a bit sceptical of their ability to to turn that into profitable med- medicine. So I, I think you've got to be very careful looking across the sector at different companies and comparisons and what, what each one's spending as a, when you do it as a ratio of sales because they have very different profiles of, yeah. of products and product development. As you say, AstraZeneca and GSK are very different beasts at the moment. But GSK has had a bit of criticism for the lack of investment in its pipeline. And we'll come back to the consumer healthcare division in a minute. But in sticking with the R&D, it is looking a little bit sparse compared to other pharma companies, not just in the UK, but globally. Do you think it's got enough in there to generate earnings growth? Well, I think that's why the rate, the valuation is where it is, is that the market or the stock market and investors generally have little confidence in their ability to bring through new drugs. But they do have products like Shingrish, which, which is a very exciting vaccine coming through. They have uh, one or two products they talked about in oncology and, and elsewhere. It's, it's hard to know from the outside exactly how how profitable those will be. The share price at the moment is not discounting much at all coming through from the pipeline. So anything they can get from that would be very helpful indeed. But it's not, you you don't have to invest in that GSK. You don't necessarily have to be massively bullish about what's in the pipeline today. But they are spending a lot of money and arguably they haven't got the returns out of that. So we'd like to see more productivity from that from that investment and better returns from it. Mm -hmm. Shingrix is, yeah, and the vaccine business is doing very well. But elsewhere the pipeline hasn't been quite as exciting as people may have hoped, especially the HIV business, where we've got this new product, Tivike, and now it's already facing competition from Gilead. Is that a bit concerning? Well, that's the nature of this business. You know, you drug, you generate, you create new drugs, you gain some market share and somebody else comes along over time. I think you need to look at the business in the round. I think this is a very strong competitor drug that's coming out. But both of these, both the GSK drug and the Gilead drug, are next generation drugs and they're taking share from the older medicines and they're incredibly effective at what they're doing. We're not in the initial stages, we're not seeing existing customers being switched across from in any in large scale but it's very early days we've only got really one or two months of data out on on these new drugs from uh, Gilead the initial data is that actually the GSK drugs are continuing to grow and continuing whether whether with existing patients the patients are staying staying on them but it's something we need to watch for the arguments for switching i think are are balanced or nuanced um it may be that both actually both businesses can do quite well in the medium term mm-hmm. and of course GSK are investing in new drugs behind that and in their respiratory franchise as well. And their respiratory franchise, two new products, Elliptra and New Color, they're doing well, but not quite well enough to offset the fall in Adver, as you mentioned earlier, as that, that's come off patent. Adver was such a massive part of their revenue in years gone by. Are the new respiratory drug, drugs capable of replacing that lost revenue? Well, the evidence from last year, maybe in the last two years, is that they have started to replace and the the drop in Adver as it, as its sales have come down and the overall respiratory products uh, business grew last year on underlying terms, not very much. Clearly, Adver 
has a risk of of seeing generic entry. We haven't had any products approved yet. I, I remember back in 2015, a lot of people criticizing Andrew Whitty when he was saying that there, there may not be a generic entry in 2016 that everyone was predicting. And we're now in 2018, and we still haven't got a generic uh, competitor to adverse. It's not as easy as people think to get the FDA or the Food and Drug Administration in America to approve a generic inhaler type product like Adver. Yeah, it's really interesting how hard that seems to have been for companies. And I I suppose credit to GSK's historic Mm. R&D that they've managed to produce Mm. a product which is so difficult to replicate. And meanwhile, yeah, that's right. And that's that's true. And meanwhile, they've gone from a re- massive reliance on one product to a much more diversified respiratory portfolio, such that, as I said, the overall respiratory sales are now are now growing slightly. And, I've, and and as we go on each year, Adver's becoming smaller and smaller just because of natural competition and because they're switching their own uh, patients over to to new products such as Brio uh, and Oro um, and these other these other medicines. So what GSK are building is a broader pipe, broader portfolio of rep- respiratory drugs and the interesting thing about the new platform is on the ellipta device is you can as a, as a as a doctor you can move your patient from one drug to another within the same device and with these with these inhaled devices or the inhaled drugs often one of the problems you have is patients not knowing how to use the device properly so once you've trained a patient up to use a device if you can move them from one drug to another within the same device if the treatment's not quite working that's quite powerful and gsk is in an almost unique position i think to do that with their portfolio going forwards but is respiratory a i mean it's obviously a big enough market but is it a fast enough growing market compared to say oncology where it's such a dynamic <laughs> part of the healthcare industry to be in is respiratory growing fast enough to provide that growth for GSK? Well I think the the issue that you're going to face in oncology at some point and maybe we're already seeing it is whether the prices that are being asked for those drugs are sustainable so yes there's a huge unmet demand and some of the new drugs are fantastic and the, the treatments are, are amazing compared to what we thought were possible maybe 10 years ago but whether the healthcare system can afford to pay the prices that are being demanded for the early, early quantities of these drugs uh, remains a moot point so yes there's should be a lot of growth but there could be pressure on pricing but it but it's not necessarily a case for an investment of comparing one company with another i know i know that's what the market loves to do but i can make an investment case on gsk without thinking about the oncology market particularly i mean clearly they have some drugs in that area as well but it's about the investment case on gsk on its own right not necessarily comparing it to perhaps faster growth in a different market okay that's interesting and it's interesting you mentioned the drugs price as well because obviously that is a hot topic in the news and it has been for a while yes can i just i mean i think what GSK have been trying to do over the last few years is reduce their dependence on really high-priced medicines to a much more diversified type of business model, including vaccines, including consumer health. And I think that's been underestimated, underappreciated how important that could be for the long-term cash flow and stability of the business. So if there was to be regulation, which, I mean, judging by Donald Trump's speech last week, doesn't look like it's coming in anytime soon. But if there, if there was a severe clampdown on drugs prices in the US, do you think GSK is in a relatively good position? Well, they're in a better place than many other pharma companies who might rely on high US prices for most of their profits. But clearly, it would any clampdown on US pricing, any change there would be a risk for GSK as well. Although, as I say, mitigated to some extent. Okay. And then we mentioned the consumer healthcare division earlier that's a growing proportion of GSK's revenues but it has caused a little bit of anger I'd say amongst some investors notably Neil Woodford who has accused them of prioritizing toothpaste over life-saving medicines it's an it's a really interesting strategy I think the fact that they've taken 
the consumer healthcare route because it is lower margin. Is it going to be a problem in the future that this lower margin part of the business is taking up a higher proportion of revenues? Well, I don't mind a business making a margin around about 20%. It's about 18% at the moment going but compared up. Compared to 30-odd percent in pharma and vaccines. Well, it's you don't have to be all or nothing. Um, there are consumer health business making high teens margin, hopefully in the mid-20s in, 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 on their planned timescale. I think it's a very attractive business. If you look at the valuation that a company like Reckitt, Benkiza trades at or Unilever in, in food and consumer goods, these companies are incredibly highly rated because they can be stable, reliable, cash-generative companies with some growth. And, and the, the health part of Reckitt's is arguably their, one of their best businesses. So I think consumer health is a very valuable business. And just look at the prices that were mooted for Pfizer's business, which wasn't actually sold in the end. But that gives you some idea of the value inherent in, in GSK. Now, whether the company should be a broadly diversified company as they are or more focused is a, is a matter for some debate. I'm quite happy with the diversification. I think there are some benefits of some read across so, so drugs can go from pharmaceutical products to over-the-counter products at some point and having both skill sets in the business can be helpful you can you can have a more holistic approach to it there are clearly some learnings and knowledge and understandings of the whole medicine area which can go across consumer health vaccines and and pharma so i can see the logic in a diversified business and it gives you a more stable profit and cash flow stream but is it going to allow gsk to hit its target its eps target which is high single digit um compound annual growth and to between 2016 and 2020 is that really achievable when margins are coming down and revenues only forecast to grow at three percent well mar- margins aren't coming down the consumer health are not sure you asking specifically about consumer health or no, a, in the wider overall. group well the wider group margins the, the targets are based on the three different divisions and they've got specific targets for each i think the one where the margins are coming down at the moment is probably is, is the pharma business where they're going where you've got the adver potential generic threat in the short term and clearly some some pressures in respiratory pricing and so on they they seem confident that they can on a three on a three of you by 2020 turn that round and, and see some growth coming from the new products but it's um will they meet those targets or not i don't know i mean i am not i'm not forecasting in in that that much depth but i i think they have some very credible very sensible product targets out there they may not quite make those numbers in 2020 but even if they get close the shares should be considerably higher than they are today okay and then another recent update is uh is the news that the chief the chief financial officer simon dinvins is suddenly leaving um people have been excited about appointments in the senior level at gsk particularly around the pharma and r&d side of things but is this sudden loss of the cfo hint of unease at the top i don't know about that he's been there a very long time so um i'm not sure what it means actually i don't have a strong view on that Mm, okay but do you agree that um hal baron and luke meals in the pharma and r&d side is a they're, they're good appointments yes we think they are yes and we've we've seen them elsewhere yeah yeah, they've uh, historically been involved in some quite high-profile pharma launches. It's obviously a, a very divisive company, GSK. It's, it's relatively easy to build an argument on either side. They've obviously got something, some impressive bits and they've also got some bits which are drawing criticism. Mm. Well, I think we like to look at it in the round. And when we look at it in the round, we see a business that has some really attractive... I, I, think, that, I think the hidden jewel in, in this, which we haven't really discussed, is vaccines, which is one of the best quality businesses in the market. The barriers to entry in the vaccines business are truly extraordinary. If you want to set up a vaccine business, 
basically forget it. I mean, it's going to take you a decade and huge amount of money. And that business is capable of, of good growth. They've got some new products coming through, which are very exciting and very high margins. I think that business on its own would command a very high rating, much higher than GSK trades at. I think the consumer health on its own would trade at a rating somewhere similar to Unilever or Reckitt Benkies, or again, much higher than the group rating, which means the implied valuation on the pharma business is well below the average rating of a company in Britain. And I think that's a bit harsh, given the phenomenal science and technology they've got, the fact they're spending three and a half billion pounds a year on R&D, which is not generated much by way of obvious return, but it's clearly they're building a great asset there. So I think there's, there's, you know, we see value in the round in the company, mm. rather than focusing on whether it's a faster growth stock than this, or, a, you know, whether it's better in oncology than AstraZeneca. That's not really the way we're looking at it. Okay. Yeah, as a, to be honest, the reason I didn't talk about vaccines too much because I'm meant to be the bear and there's nothing bad to say about vaccines. <laughs> but in talking about all those different different parts, the, the main problem I have personally with GSK is it doesn't really seem to have an identity. You compare it, you're comparing it there to Reckitt Benkiser, Unilever, that's one part. And then the pharma part, there are some comparisons with mm. other pharma companies in the in the wider healthcare space. And then the vaccines business, like you say, is fantastic mm. on its own. They don't really seem to have a direction as a whole. And I think that what is what is annoying investors at the moment. Would you not agree with that? I'm not sure I would agree. I think there are some scientific and technical and, and regulatory overlaps. I think when they work with governments around the world, particularly in emerging markets, the fact that they can bring vaccines into play along with pharmaceuticals, along with consumer health, they've got a big presence in those countries. I think that all works together. Yes, they're different to others, but I look at it as an individual company and, and as a collection of businesses. I don't think it's, it's not like... On the one hand, um, they're selling cars and on the other hand, they're making drugs. I mean, these businesses do have an overlap and where they've had products like Lucozade in the past, which maybe there's a less of a fit and now Horlicks, they've, they've disposed of those or they are disposing of those to become more focused on health and, and, and science based products. So I, I, think there's an, I think there's some overlap within that. I think there's some benefits of that. And uh, as a collection of businesses, I think, I think it's a very good collection of businesses. OK, well, that's uh Really interesting. Thanks very much, Simon, for coming in. To reiterate, the IC is currently recommending investors hold on to GSK shares. We are worried about generic advert and the HIV competition, narrowed margins and the need for big investment. But we're feeling a lot more confident about the dividend, which currently yields 5.4% now that management has confirmed it's not going to be buying Pfizer's consumer healthcare business. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll be back for another episode of Bull vs. Bear soon. But if you're looking for more IC podcasts in the meantime, head to our website or subscribe on Acast or iTunes. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.